Hey, it's Dr. Marissa Lee Naismith here, and I'm so honored to be sharing today's interview round episode with you. Listen, and you will be inspired by amazing healthcare practitioners, voice teachers, and music industry professionals who will share their stories, knowledge, and experiences within their specialized fields to help you live your best life every day. As singers, our whole body is our instrument, and our instrument echoes how we feel physically, mentally, and emotionally. So don't wait any longer. Take charge and optimize your instrument now. Remember that to sing is more than just learning about how to use the voice. It's about a voice and beyond. So without further ado, let's go to today's episode. Chris Johnson shares his journey as he transitioned from a successful performance career to becoming a leading vocal coach working with numerous major recording artists as well as leading West End performers. As a singer who experienced vocal issues himself, Chris has a solid understanding of today's industry demands. He discusses the strategies he employs for assisting others overcome vocal pathologies and how it is possible for a vocalist to have a sustainable career while maintaining their unique signature sound. Chris proudly describes his new assessment training program, which is one of numerous programs he has launched to assist our singing teaching community improve learning outcomes for their students. There is so much more in this episode, including the impact of COVID-19 on Chris's self-care regime. I'm sure you're going to love it. Chris Johnson is a highly experienced vocal coach who understands the demands on performers today and the vital role voice training plays in developing and sustaining vocal range and strength night after night. As a result of this, major label contemporary artists, singer-songwriters, West End lead performers and vocal coaches all trust him to take good care of their voices, develop their techniques and bring out all the style and artistry needed to take on the career. Trained in vocal manual therapy, massage and myofacial release, Chris's training perspective respects the whole self. As a professional performer for 15 years, Chris can also appreciate the value of a reliable routine, respecting life stresses, training for the unexpected and developing a positive mindset. Chris is also the founder of singing teacher training organization, Teach Voice, co-founder of the most popular podcast for singers, The Naked Vocalist, and his unique coaching style is in demand from London to Los Angeles. Without further ado, let's go to today's episode. Hi and welcome, Chris. Thank you so much for being on the show. How's life in the UK? Life in the UK is pretty good, actually. The coronavirus situation is getting better, so we're socialising a bit more and the sun is out, so we're, you know... We're barbecuing, even though I would probably barbecue in the pouring rain. I don't care. Yeah. I'm having I'm having that barbecue. So, but it, the sun's out, so it's really great here right now. Well, I do have to share a secret with you that Monday night at our place is barbecue steak every Monday night. 
rain, hail or shine. So I've had a big piece of steak, so I apologise to all the vegetarians and the vegans <laughs> out there. I don't want to get off on the wrong foot straight up, but, yeah, but it's, it's but if anybody done. does return back to eating steak, to be fair, I've I've since getting a good barbecue, I've realised that the only way to really eat steak is off the barbecue. Yes, it is. It's amazing. So good. Yes, but I don't know how you have time to barbecue at the moment. You've been really busy. You have so much going on, not only in your professional life, but you have a new baby boy. You've moved right. house. There's so much going on. How's the baby going? The baby's awesome. Yeah. Um, he's guzzling. He's long. You know, because some because we've got a, a, also a two and a two and a three quarter year old daughter. Um, so some of the things like cots and whatnot, yes. things to sleep in, sleeping bags, that kind of thing. Um, obviously, we we had them ready for him, so you can repurpose those things. And then you realize you realize how different your children are. And oh. then so so my first daughter is like really bijou. She's only born at six pounds. He comes along at like nearly nine pounds, and wow. uh, everything that she had at like three months old, he's too long for it so so it's like oh he's doing great a little bit too great to be fair we got to catch up wow. with all the, all the extra bits that's amazing I usually siblings are very close in weight and size but to have a three pound difference is is a is quite ex- extreme and extraordinary so Absolutely. you as a child were you a big baby well I think I was you know slap bang on average uh, but as a as a grown man, I think I'm on the taller side at six foot two. Oh, right. I can't imagine you being average at anything. And if I remember, <laughs> and if I remember rightly, when we were speaking last, you told me the story that your father was in the army. So that's right. So how did he feel about having a son? That obviously you must have been very tall from a very young age. And you deciding that you were going to go into the performing arts rather than being a soccer player, or do you call it football over there? Yeah, football, yeah. Okay, rather than being a football player, he ends up having a son who is going to be a performer. Yeah, and it, back back then, I mean, I was born in the early 80s, right? So um, I think singers back then... We're like a. It's almost like we're a mystical rare breed. If somebody could sing in the in the family, it was like right. Someone can sing in the family. Let's wow. all sit down. It was unusual, right? For, certainly in my world, anyway, for, for for there to be someone who was genuinely good at singing. So you had that kind of like when that sort of I guess cultural background underpins it. It would be unusual um, to have that. So, so nobody's used to somebody coming out and saying, "Well, I'm a singer in the family. Um, I want to be a performer." And I think initially, because my dad was in the army, I think I think he would have liked for me to join in the army. Mm-hmm. But I think as as I grew into sort of you know my early teens and whatnot, and getting to the point where you would make that decision, I think he he definitely realised that I probably wasn't cut out for the army. <laughs> right? Yeah, so yeah. He yeah. was like, no. No, he, he, his own words. He's like, I, I can't hear the killer instinct in you, and I'm like, yeah, that's fair enough, Dad. Um, but um, 
but then, so for me to want to go into music was like a bit of a, it was a bit of a no-no to begin with. And that's just, again, the culture. Yes. So I definitely did put off that aspiration, I think, for quite a while. But I think in the later years when I started to get on stage, and also, this works, by the way, when you sing the type of music, um, by accident, that is, that your dad likes. So I ended up singing Motown. Oh, and then of, of course, of course, my dad's like, "Well, yes, you should definitely be professional." Uh, so yeah. I, th- I think he really, he really got on board when I started to actually gig more, and, and he he started to listen to me and go, "Actually, maybe, maybe he can sing." Actually, <laughs> so did he put you into singing lessons at all? Um, I put myself into them actually. Um, I was a very bad sort of paper boy you know I just you know messed up delivered the wrong half of papers to the wrong half of the paper round but still I used that whatever it would be 15 pounds 20 pounds after I'd gone back and collected all the papers back and delivered them to the right houses I still had (laughs) I still had 20 pounds and that went on um before I had singing lessons I'm pretty sure it went on cream eggs uh which was a a confection yes oh you know those okay fair enough cream eggs in Australia Okay, yeah, cool. I thought you, you guys in country. Canada would know. No, no, no. We are not a third world country here. <laughs> we have something other than kangaroos in Australia, believe it or not. Oh, you know, I had the stereotypical view of Australia yeah. in my head just then, yeah. Okay. And um, so, so, yeah, I did spend that money then on a singing teacher um, that was recommended to me when I was about 12 years old. Um, I was singing in a youth club and somebody was like, oh, you sing, here's my singing teacher's number. Um, and I went to see that guy called Robin Gare, and that was it. So I spent ended up spend, spending that money um, a, f- a few years later after finding that number, and that was really, I think, when you look at it, the singing lessons themselves were insanely basic, mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> and I was just kind of being championed, and he enjoyed my style and voice, so he, he couldn't wait to get me into a choir. So really, as far as £20 goes, that was probably the best £20 I'd ever spent because it did really change my trajectory amongst other things but yes. that was a, that was a really a turning point for me yes and let's be honest here if you're going through voice change you really do need a teacher that is going to champion you after all and be your cheerleader because that that is really an awkward time too almost at 12 as you're starting to go through voice change to begin lessons yeah, and <clears throat> I think much much like any uh, person going through the voice change anyway, you'd probably be able to uh, empathise with me when my voice was definitely not very stable. Mm-hmm. Some people have a, like a, a fast change. Somebody, some people have way more instability. And, and for me, it was like a lot of flipping basically Mickey Mouse, oh, which no. ended up being being my nickname uh for oh, quite no, a while that's cruel and in a boys school you know boys school just kind of mm. quite quite a bit more uh cutting I think than when when I was in mixed school before um so yeah the boys school but nevertheless I think that sort of subliminally gave me this uh self-consciousness consciousness about my own voice yes um how did you I, overcome I, that well I mean uh time definitely was the only healer on that one I think um mm. but but what 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 it led me to do i can i can take some of those comments they were just a laugh this is not this is not like kind of a public outcry to how they affected my career it really isn't but everything contributes to everything doesn't it so yes 
when I think about that, I think about deepening my voice when I was about 15. Thinking, right. speak, speak down there, man, you know, kind of keep it away from that flip and you'll be absolutely fine. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'll sound more authoritative or something like that on as a as a uh, added benefit. But I do I do distinctly remember that giving me a rather dark voice for quite yes. a long time. Yes. Taking me off my level. And I, I do remember range, especially in chest voice or like belting and stuff like that. Real pain in the bum for like seven years, eight years, you know, a long time. That's until a I got into my twenties. That is a long time. I know that you had an amazing performance career, even though when I was stalking you on the web, there wasn't a lot of information about you having had a performance career. And that only just came out really between you and I having a chat. So that would have, you would have started your career at that, that time where your voice was still settling because didn't you start performing professionally at 21? Yeah, about then. Yeah. So after a little stint in the choir and choir singing was every Monday, Mm. uh, maybe an extra rehearsal if you had a show coming up and then a show once every few months, if you like. So that's not a strong workload. So whatever I did in that time, I could, you know, for want of a better word, shout my way stylistically through a song uh, and make it to the end on a Monday night. And then I'd, I'd be, I'd recover by Friday, <laughs> you know, cause that was me. I'd, I didn't, I didn't know that this wasn't supposed to be hard. So that was me as a teenager. Um, so then hooking up with some band members and, and then starting to get into professional gigging, yeah. it only takes two gigs in a row for you to realize, wow, this is really unsustainable, you know, mm-hmm. Friday and Saturday night. And then you're like, Oh my God, Saturday night is so hard. Uh, wow. And then I then take then you get to Monday, pretty much not recovered by Monday's rehearsal again, and so I just kind of shouted my way through that one, and then get yourself to Friday or Saturday again. Um, but then because we did quite a good job with what we were doing, and people enjoyed the demeanour, we started to get more and more gigs, and that's when I started to get more and more ropey with my voice. Mm. Um, and so there did come a crunch point where I had to go to uh, an ENT surgeon in my town. Mm-hmm. Uh, about about the age of 21, 22, because um, at that point I also joined an originals band. So I was doing the choir, kind of, which was quite a big show choir. I was doing a paid gig as a function uh, band. And then I was doing an originals band, which had a gig and a rehearsal in the, in the week as well. So then when that came over, um, I really got into trouble. So at that point I had to reassess my voice big time, mm-hmm. um, where which is where I started to um, look out for my vocal health and start to take a bit more uh, notice of voice training, which wasn't very available where I lived. Yes. So with the ENT, did he find that there was anything wrong? Was there a pathology there? Uh, apparently at the time, nodules. And I know from my like extensive training now that yes. um, the the technology available at the time wouldn't have necessarily meant it was nodules mm. um it could have been some other inflammation with phlegm on it to be fair that appeared like nodules but but nevertheless my voice was was definitely in a state and mm. and that the ENT definitely felt like he saw the swelling that would have turned into nodules so at that wow. point I went down a pathway of very basic speech therapy some singing lessons um, and that didn't necessarily make my life easier because what I found out at that point is that I really had to 
rewind in the middle of a career i had to rewind and and unpick myself during being paid to perform which i don't you know i don't recommend (laughs) some people have to do it yeah so i guess some people really have to some some people are really down the line with it some people have may have to do it and i've done it so i can appreciate how hard it is to do that um it ideally you'd take a little bit of time off and get and try and get it going a little bit better before you have to start the next week again but so it, it was a very tricky time for me that one it took me a long time to go back to go forward again um so so yeah but fortunately I did it yes well there's two things that um two questions that arise for me um with those experiences that you encountered yourself as a professional performer, professional singer with that heavy workload and what you went through with, with um, the, the nodules or supposed nodules, has that changed your approaches or does that inform your, some of the decisions that you make in the, in the voice studio as a teacher, when you're working with professional artists? Like, do you feel that you have empathy or a greater understanding of what goes on in the field because you have been on those stages yourself? Absolutely, yeah. And and when I can, because the empathy can be um, somewhat amplified, if you like, because the, the mm. thing that I can't fully empathise with is being at a level which will be, I sell records internationally based on this sound. Mm-hmm. Um, or if I cancel a show, it costs somebody a hundred grand. Those kind of those kind of situations are really, really tricky. And and so as much as my my experiences give me empathy, I, I sometimes I can't even imagine the pressure that's felt by somebody who has to make decisions based on that kind of money or that kind of pressure um, mm-hmm. put on them. So I, th- I feel like the artists that I work with, yes, I, I can empathise to a level, but it does help me make the decisions. And sometimes, you know, yeah, w- where there can be somewhat purist views in this world of, of vocal coaching, um, we're not trying to purify voices. That's not really the job. We're trying to make them oh. functional. Functional. Yes. That's what yes. they need to do. Yes. Um, and, and functional night after night, day after day. And some things are just not worth changing at, the, at a certain point in life. It's just, it's intrinsic to that person. It may even been in their speech habits forever. And speech is so linked to personality. Are you going to change someone's personality at the age mm-hmm. of 35 mm-hmm. in the middle of a career? I don't think you are. I think what you've got to do is, is um, uh, develop that tool belt to go, with with a few exceptions, you can help someone to to get functionality out of a lot of things if you understand that actually for someone to use that voice quality, it needs changes probably um, and uh, adjustments in the breathing system. It needs to be supported by resonance and vowels yeah. differently to other yeah. ways of singing. So yeah. you can optimize, and then a then there may be some small compromises made here and there. Uh, but not a global readjustment of that singer in the middle of a career, which yeah. which will have them running running away from vocal coaches. They won't want to see a vocal coach ever again. And so for us to do that job of not unpicking them is probably going to stand them in a good stead going down the line because they'll need a coach again in the future. And if they've had a good experience, they will seek one out again. 
And if they haven't, they'll just go, they'll probably dig themselves into an even deeper hole. And I just would hate that to happen. Yes. And that poses another question. I interviewed a singer a few weeks ago. She had a a terrible experience with her first singing teacher. And I know for a fact that there are a lot of singers that don't go to singing teachers because they are concerned that a singing teacher is going to change the integrity of their sound or try and have them sound in a way that they don't want to sound in terms of making money. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's, I think it's an interesting point. And I have thought a fair bit about this. Um, there was there was a time when everyone was talking about Adele, for example, oh, uh, and how yes. Adele wor- yeah. worked with some classical teachers before. And there was a there was a, a news article, I think it was in the Guardian of the UK newspapers, mm-hmm. where um, where there was a couple of uh, classical teachers who would say what they would do with Adele. And to be fair, it was interesting. I mean, on yeah. on some level, it was maybe a little bit, you know, uh, overconfident to say that, that that Adele should learn classical technique. That's how she would get a better voice. Um, I don't believe that at all. Um, but I think there can be somewhat of a skewed view that classical solves things. Because if you take Adele and you times her with classical technique, her identity is so strong Yes. That I don't think the classical technique would unpick her. I think mm-hmm. it could it could integrate itself into her because her identity won't let that classical technique change her too much. She's too strong for that. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the best part about it. However, somebody who's not uh got as strong an identity, they may not be even be professional and they want to sing pop music if they go into classical um singing they often end up sounding far too classical for their CCM style. Or too and that formal. is, for me, that's the identity yeah. strength. Yes, yes. And when that whole situation happened with Adele, I was actually horrified to read a lot of the commentary that was posted um, in the forums on Facebook about why it happened and shaming CCM singers like as a CCM singer myself, and I had a 35-year career, I couldn't believe we were still having these discussions. You know, it never ceases to amaze me. All this high art, low art mentality almost started to re-emerge in a more public place. And with Adele, you can't separate the, the style. The style is what it is. But also, what about the touring schedule? And what about the Mm -hmm. demands of that touring schedule? Is that something when you have these professional performers come to you, do you look at all of that as well as, okay, this is going on with the voice? Yeah, yeah, I do. All those considerations um, uh, help us to form as well. Part of what we do is I I can't overload someone with training. You know, I can't say, hey, you have to practice for an hour a day. I know that would burn someone out, right? What we need to do is trying to incorporate something that is highly effective in the shortest amount of time. And that doesn't mean it's a, that doesn't mean it's a quick fix. I guess you could call it that because it's quick and it helps to, you know, work something out, but not in the traditional sense, because what it needs to be is in a, in a voice 
load of that size, you don't want to be loading it more. You yeah. want to be trying to offset some of that load. So yeah, voice breaks come into come into use. Yeah. And and how can you get to that person's um, most primary function in the shortest amount of time um, in a day? And then they can incorporate something that that can um, set them up within fifteen minutes um, mm. or twenty minutes. Um, and especially if they've got a show, you know, you know, it's like uh, I know a lot of singers out there would say, "I'm not really warmed up until I sing, uh, or or rather, warm up for an hour before I do a show." A lot of pro singers could never do that. No. Could never warm up for an hour and sing no. two hours after talking for five hours. It would just never happen. So if 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 we're one of those people who need to warm up for an hour before a show, arguably we're we don't know our voices well enough at that point. Uh, we're, we're still getting around problems that we don't understand. I think as we know our voices well enough better, we can get warm if it's not just waking up out of bed. We can get warm within 10, 15 minutes. Yes. And if, if, lifestyle, if lifestyle isn't really getting in the way. Yes, yes. And lifestyle is a big one. Like for me, I was touring in a rock band and it was the only time that I ran into problems with my voice and it had nothing to do with misuse. It was just the demands of being on the road, being the chick singer in the band, having to lug with the guys when we couldn't afford roadies, the band bus picking us up very early in the morning. So it was <laughs> sleep deprivation, lifestyle, diet, <clears throat> being in a rock band. It was all of that. And I had the training to support my voice, but I couldn't overcome everything else that was going on around me. Yeah. So have you ever had to tell someone that, okay, you need to take a break or have you always been able to help a singer in some way? Um, very infrequently have I had to tell someone to take a break. Yeah, very infrequently. Although with some singers, especially when the stakes have been high, you know, it's easy when someone isn't professional, but um, provided their job isn't really making putting demands on them um, in their in their week nine to five or whatever. Um, I've I have had a couple of people where I've had to speak to their managers to help mm -hmm. their managers understand that this is a pressured environment and the voice is a delicate thing and. And much, much like, you know, the body and muscle, if, if you break muscle down, it builds itself back up again stronger. Much like you, you cut skin, there'll be a scar to reinforce the area. That, that sounds like such great stuff. But as soon as you start talking yeah. about vocal folds... Yes. They rely on the absolute op. They don't need that kind of strengthening. They don't need to be like beaten down to be built back up again. So when when managers, I think, think about singers when they don't know enough about singers, mm -hmm. they think about singers just like they think about weightlifters. And yeah. don't worry, I tell you what, you'll be stronger if you push through it. And yeah. it's just not true. Yes. Uh, we know that the vocal folds, if they get scarred, Yes, it will make them stronger against um, further injury, but to get the beauty and mm -hmm. all of the color that's available within the voice, they cannot be in. They cannot get scarred and be better. Yes, yes. Unfortunately, a lot of managers look at singers as commodities. Uh, in my situation, I was told when I tried to resign from the band that um, I would never work again unless I stayed. 
and fulfilled all the commitments. So I had to keep singing with the pathology and that was rough. And it took me almost a year to recover from that experience. Yeah. And I was a single mum at the time and I needed the money and I couldn't afford not to work and I was bullied and I believed that was the case. So I'm sure that a lot of that happens. Oh, it does. It really does. And I I do know an artist of, you know, like right on the top level um, who has described that same thing, you know, being being coerced when feeling terrible to go and do a thing because you've had a loan from a record company, you have to pay it back. Yes. It's like being, it's like being under, under a loan shark's control half the time. Yeah. Yes. So getting to do that sustained a, a vocal injury that meant that um, an album could not be toured. And guess what, record company and managers, you lost a lot of money there and that was your decision. Yes. Um, so yes. I really hope any, if, any, if any managers listen to this, oh, mm. you have, sometimes you just have no idea what kind of, what kind of catastrophe you could be making someone or pushing someone into by making them do something. Yes. And as singers, we're already in our heads as it is. I mean, in one sense, we're pretty messed up, aren't we? (laughs) We're a different breed. (laughs) It's a prerequisite to get a good song out. Yeah, Uh, yeah, yes. So (laughs) we don't need that kind of pressure externally. We put enough on ourselves. So you teach singers and you work with singers across classical styles, musical theatre, professional touring singers in CCM styles. So do you find that the pathologies or the issues with those working singers are different or do you find that there's pretty much a commonality in the sorts of problems that they'll run into? Oh no, I think it's so varied um, because the I guess the genesis of some and a lot of pathologies it is about how the mind deals with it during the process. So someone's injury may come from how they try and preserve their voice, right? So that would be someone who's really worried about what mm. the outcome might be. Yes. Um, somebody who makes a lot of effort singing, you know, it's quite common as I kind of agree with Dr. Bastian, who's like a really famous laryngologist, um, that a lot of, a lot of people who make a lot of effort when they sing are not aware of that effort. So people who overdo their voice, they often say, yeah, my voice is fine every day. It was fine every day. And then I sustained like loads of injuries. And, And quite often you might realize listening back to the recordings, you might be like, oh, the, the sense of effort was not, on your radar that's that's the thing um i'm not sure the voice was always fine every day i think it probably was giving them signs but but um uh, self-awareness especially within the throat and and the sensations that come there there's such little to feel um and we can't directly control our you know larynx we have to do it through uh, indirect means and different ways of of um uh, feedback that we don't always know what's going on down there until it's gone wrong so then you get you get those people who are hyper aware and try them say save themselves. People who are under aware and don't know that they're burying themselves, they create they have all kinds of different outcomes to injury. Um, and then how that injury is uh, intervened to, how quickly it's dealt with, and how quickly that person can get on the path to recovery. The longer they leave it, the more chronic 
the less likely they are to recover because things like fear get a hold, anxiety gets a hold, it takes years to unpick that sort of stuff. And that's that would relate to things like muscle tension, dysphonia and loads yeah. of tension patterns. And yeah. oh my God, it's, it's so complex. And all we need to do is like, we need to make, um, to avoid that complexity building up too much, we probably just need to have a way in every country to make sure that singers have a very fast way to be seen and a very multidisciplinary and very quick way of of getting into recovery mm-hmm. um because the career the career is very affected by that that intervention yes we have um we have quite quite a good system in place here in australia with some of our touring musical theater productions that um debbie fireland i'm not sure if you know deborah no. fireland yeah um she has a program where they take care of singers and um, they give them like manual therapies and things like that. Yeah. And really help them after a, a show, like vocal unloading. Yeah. Uh, that, that kind of thing. Yeah. So, and, and like in terms of musical theatre singers, some of that repertoire has become ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like what are these composers thinking? You know, some of the, the notes that they're expecting the singers to sing, the demands now from audiences for people to belt, you know, they want to hear those notes. Have you seen a change in that repertoire over the years? Do you think it has become more demanding or is it just or are we more aware of it as a, as a singing community? Yeah, I think we're more aware of it. And I don't know, I don't know, I feel like now maybe... I'm always quite aware that sometimes maybe it's just because I haven't got my eye on it that I feel like it's better. Uh, but when when somebody who's really got their eye on it goes, no, 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 it's not. Um, so I feel like the most recent of of uh, repertoire I've seen has been a little bit more about the vibe and the feeling and less about the range when it comes to contemporary. But five years ago, and obviously yeah. that stuff is still really like popular now and being toured and whatnot, five years ago... 10 years ago there's a big part piece in there um there was so it was just getting higher and higher and higher and i remember yeah. when i first heard once once upon a time in brooklyn when then it's like uh, a flat f sharp belted on the top you know and i'm just like oh my god every song i hear just gets higher and more intense and higher and more intense and uh, which means that you know sometimes the the singer who sings it might only sing I don't know, five, six songs in a show. They might only really sing for 25 minutes in total. Yes. But that 25 minutes is full on, right? Yes. I'm there going, I sing two hours. Yeah, and it's like, yeah, but that's Frank Sinatra. Yeah. <laughs> it's, not, it's not the same as this. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Then, then you add the dialogue and maybe that person might be shouting as part of their character, really emotional. Before you know it, it's like burnout. Yes, Gosh, in my day when I was performing professionally, I would do four-hour, five-hour solo gigs. Goodness you me. Know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I couldn't do that now. <laughs> uh, or I would know that, to be fair, I would have to do a lot of training to get myself to that vocal fitness Oh yeah, I, and, I think that is yeah. that is about like you have to experience that. The only way you can train for that is to experience it, isn't it? You got to get yourself ready. But goodness me, getting on that train yeah. there'd be a lot yeah. of learning. Yes, and I, I mean, I was doing like at least five gigs a week, doing that wow. that number of hours. But 
yeah, it was really vocally fit, but not at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm like I'll the turn Yeah, I'm like the mechanic <laughs> with the car. I look after everyone else's car and I kind of, oh, yeah, mine will be fine, you know, because yeah. just oh, yeah. now, which is a really yeah, yeah. bad thing to say. But anyway, let's go back to you and your training. And I know that uh, you first started your training doing um, some SLS work to become a teacher. That's right. Yes. So that would have been a very interesting experience. But back at the time when you probably started looking into and studying SLS, it was probably taught very differently to how it is now because it's probably been a little watered down over the years. Um, So how was that for you? And, like, did it leave you wanting to know more after studying SLS? Yeah. I mean, the SLS aspect was, um, as well, what was great about it in the beginning was uh, I heard about it along with, I think it was probably about five other teachers who all were in the choir with me, and we all kind of worked together in, in a place called Southampton in the UK. So... When you've got five people together learning the same thing, it's a lovely little group of, it's not like you're like a lone lone teacher just kind of working out on your own. You've got people to talk to. So when yeah. we went to all these SLS se- seminars, um, that m- information and that, I guess, pedagogical structure was brand new to us. You know, we, we really didn't have that kind of uh, uh, awareness. So that that part of it was really excellent. And the people that I met within SLS, um, some of the teachers I still talk to now, John Henney is one of them, um, really amazing people and amazing teachers, communicators, so good. There's no way you can teach 25 years of anything without being a great communicator. Yes. So you've got, you know, you've got that aspect and have a business, of course. <laughs> that's the that's the yes. other part. Yes. Um, so so I met some really amazing colleagues that I still talk to now. But as with anything, I think a, a, a structure gives you a great place to start. Mm-hmm. It, when you're sat there in front of a singer and you're like, oh, my God, I don't even know where to begin. It gives you somewhere to begin. Yes. And that's valuable, even if that place to begin is uh, partly a you know partly not quite right and doesn't really lead you towards the most effective route but then you're not an expert when you first started so that's a that's a great part about pedagogical structures like that Um, but of course structure can come with rigidity Mm -hmm. and um, certainly because of the way that uh, when I was in SLS the way that they assessed you and and that you kept your status was to be very rigid within that structure to tick the boxes that were um, deemed to be the right ones to tick um, and not bring in any other techniques that weren't from within the organization and you know like Yes, I don't. I don't think any organisation can run entirely insularly like that. That's never going to work. But it did run like that. That's the unfortunate yes. part. Yes. So I of know. course, when information comes in from the outside, and people with sort of really um, uh, great uh, sort of concerns in the teaching, but they'll they'll bring in these things like vocal science and maybe even massage and all these kind of subjects, but they would be rejected initially by the organization as being not something we're going to be looking into. Uh, So that's when, um, for example, I left that organization 
um, because of that inflexibility. And I know a lot of organizations throughout the world experience similar things at, at certain times. Yes. And you have quite a remarkable toolkit. You, you know, I think you're amazing. Where have you acquired all of that? Because, you, I mean, it's very eclectic. So obviously you've picked up bits and pieces from everywhere or I'm assuming from everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think when you first come out of your structure, for example, um, and you're aware there's new stuff, I think, and that was probably like, you know, t- more than 10 years ago now, mm. um, you, you tend to go out and just kind of try everything it's a bit it's a bit unstructured almost a bit frantic what is there what is there i'll try something yeah, new i like that um, word frantic yeah yeah, yeah. frantically trying yeah. stuff yeah so so you have that but then then actually um that gives you an opportunity to, to see actually what might not work for your clientele maybe i misunderstood it who knows but there's stuff that didn't work there's stuff that did work that starts to carve out a, a sort of a, a a broader direction um, but then I used to li- I used to listen to a lot of fitness podcasts, and one thing I still kind of do is I'm, unfortunately I'm not really an academic person. I'm not that interested in going to really? university. Well, I love I love to study, I research, but I don't have I don't have an interest to go to university. I don't know why, because I feel like um, in the direction I want to go, if there was a university course that I could help to carve out for myself, right. Um, it would be terrific because then mm-hmm. it's sort of a partly self-led journey, right? So yes. I used to listen to a lot of uh, lot of uh, fitness podcasts and one guy I used to listen to was called Ben Coomba. And he used to just say back in the day, I'll find someone who knows and I'll work with them. Mm-hmm. And that's it. And I basically did that. So I, you know, I ended up working, um, I work a lot with Ingo Tietze privately because I, lo- I just love the guy and he, he knows so much. Brad's, Story is also another really sort of gracious educator um, who helps me understand the acoustics. Uh, getting hold of people through my podcast, The Naked Vocalist, yes. I ended up meeting people like um, Robert Susuma, who's a somatic educator, um, Meribeth Dame, who was uh, some, uh, another type of, I guess, voice work that was all body but energy. And all through my time, I'd be, I'd just be working with these teachers directly and just getting their perspective. And, and yes. those, I, I very much value those people because those kind of people have sort of shaped my direction in coaching and helped me figure out really out of so much that I could spend time looking at what is going to be really good for the people that I'm most aligned to help because I can't help everybody. And I'm definitely better at helping some people than others, different genres than others. Mm. So if I can stick in those lanes and find the tools that work terrifically within those lanes and somewhat get creative with how I interpret those tools or, or even just um, uh, scientific, scientific information, I create something really good for the people that I align with. Yes. Did you find then when you started to branch out and frantically look into all this other information and all this other training did you find that the people that you were working with that their sounds also started to change um and I'm not saying this to be disrespectful in any way but from what I I've heard of SLS singers a lot of them have 
uh, uh, their own sound. Like it's very much, to me, a generic sound. Did you find that your students' sounds started to change also? Well, you know what we said earlier about cl the classical and the identity of the singer? Mm -hmm. Like I, I feel that's the same way for um, SLS in some ways. SLS has some very very high-end, probably the most high-end of clients in history. Yes. yes. Michael Jackson, yes. Stevie Wonder. I, mean, just, I don't need Kelly to list, list anymore. Yeah, I know. Yeah. That was the big thing here in Australia when SLS came out. They were pushing all the big singers and, yeah, it was like this army of people infiltrating our country. Yeah. Yeah, and it's funny that because because of the way that um, I guess when when the information filters down into the organisation, a, a low larynx, for example, yes, it can be rather a useful thing for someone who's experiencing chronic muscle tension dysphonia of some type. Mm -hmm. um, it can be useful for that. It can be a way to stretch the muscles that lift larynx, of course, because they can become dysfunctional when they're when they're used a lot. So the the low larynx is not a problem um but it became as as a almost a catch-all almost a it solves everything or i don't know what to do so i'm going to lower the larynx you know that these are all the kind of things that happen to new teachers who have been given a tool and i would when i first training i would have been guilty of that as well because i didn't know what to do and this was the thing that worked the most often um to people yes. who were struggling with tension so that that basically i think gathers so much that it probably pins itself to an organization as a thing that they do right mm -hmm. so you have that aspect so um that i think that contributed to the potential for sls singers to sound a particular way but when you listen to michael jackson and stevie wonder they are the antithesis of that thing that sls were known for and what yeah. does that tell you that tells you that those singers identities were so strong that they only really enveloped what was useful for them from that coach and didn't take on the stuff to to stuff that too far like a low larynx mm -hmm. um uh in, in order and that's when you get these i guess i think sometimes um misunderstandings about that technique helping that singer the most and i, I just i think it's way more complicated than that the singer yeah. takes on what they take on and that's yes. not everything yes that's so true i mean we all take on the information that we believe is going to serve us and what we don't think is going to serve us we discard yes yeah, yeah. um now i would like to move on to your assessment program you have created a new program. This is one of the new things that you've been working on and you've introduced. Um, tell us about this program. I, I have dabbled a little bit and that was through the Vocal Health First Data Program and I thought it was fascinating and I loved the holistic approach that the larynx is a part of the whole body, which I think a lot of people forget about. Nice, yeah. Well, this, um, yeah, definitely, definitely is the, is the fruit of a lot of, I guess, initially that frantic searching, but um, where I rested upon, and much like when I listen to a podcast, I listen to one that's on neurobiology mm -hmm. um, by Andrew Andrew Huberman, which is a really amazing podcast, and um, it's nine. His is ninety 
minutes and he explains the mechanisms around something like I don't know, stimulating adrenaline, right? You know, and um, why would adrenaline be good for us? Well, it can help learning, blah, 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 blah. But what he does is he does give you the much deeper view of it. Mm-hmm. And what he could do is just tell you 15 minutes. He could just do a 15-minute one on the protocol that you should follow in order to gain this skill. Um, but it wouldn't be applied as well by the person listening to that protocol. Also, if that person wanted to know more about that protocol, they wouldn't be able to take on information from other sources as well if they don't know the mechanisms behind how something works. So not only does it help you apply stuff better, but it helps you to read literature that would previously exclude you because of your lack of understanding of what's going on in that literature. Wow. So when we look at, when I look at assessment methods in that way, mm-hmm. what we do is we look at the whole body and its effect on the voice. Yes. Because we must expand that view for us to truly say that that exercise is definitely going to solve that problem or rather more likely to solve that problem because we're mm-hmm. never 100% sure. Yes. So if we've got that if we've got that systematic view of the voice, then um we can generate what would be a working hypothesis. So if we move different body body parts, we measure the voice range dynamics um, points where transitions feel like they happen, things like vocal fry, uh, as a, for me, is an important check uh, on someone's voice as well. When we have all these in place, we could create a, a working hypothesis. And it has to be a working hypothesis because the diagnosis, um, th- a singer can get too hold of a diagnosis and sort of say, well, I have. Yes. I pull, I pull yes. my chest voice. And uh, yes. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes they're not doing what they believe they have because it was given too strong a diagnosis in the beginning. So with this assessment methods, it it helps you to kind of go, here's the hypothesis. It might be this. Let's try this. But we have to respect how this might be a a cascading effect in the system and we can quickly redirect. Um, So I've generated that um, course as a way for a, a singing teacher to understand that process. And also what it does, it, you look at the information that you gain from vocal assessments. Part of it is also to um, challenge your own biases. So you might listen to someone and say, well, I reckon this is going on. But when you lay out some information about that singer and the assessment methods you've done, sometimes we get these results that go, well, it can't be. Maybe what I first thought, it can't really be that it's it. It's not behaving as I expected it to be. And that allows you to not just make a judgment based on someone singing half a song in front of you, or in some cases, just singing mm. a single scale. Yes. It is based on so much more and it does challenge bias. And what's really great in the, in the first version I did of the workshop, which was in person, can't do that right now. Yeah. In person, I had a voting software, which is really good that you could do on your phone. So we had people sing. Oh. Everyone would vote what they thought it was. Yes. We would run the assessment methods and they uh, and do a little bit of work and they would all vote again. And you just see the graph change. And it might be like, yeah, it's breathing. Yeah, it's this. And then suddenly everyone's like, all right, yeah, probably it's a register then. Or, or maybe, or actually, no, I think this person's just got a skewed idea of what singing is. Um, you know, 
it really you know because really everything really you can track it back up to the head can't you mm-hmm. every time mm-hmm. so um so that that was the great part so i know that biases lead decisions and and we we do need a bit of that in some way to be more efficient we can't just test everything otherwise the singer would never get a bloody voice lesson that's so but, true. Yes. You know, we, we do need to kind of go, okay, if I'm going to have a bias or, or rather a strong opinion, it needs to be based on way more information than it currently is. Yes. And uh, one thing you neglected to say, though, and is that it's, a well, I don't know if it's the whole program. I only know the part of the program that I, I did and it was all movement-based. And the assessment yeah. was all based on movements, some as simple as putting your arms up in the air, yeah. some marching. And can I tell you that I went and did some of them the very next day after I did your modules and one of the students, um, I ended, I had her put her arms up in the air and she just was like, oh, my gosh, that's amazing. (laughs) Like, wow, you're a miracle worker. What did you just do? I said, no, I just got you to put your arms up in the air. I actually, (laughs) (laughs) you know. So some of those things, not only are they great assessments, but some of them work instantly. Instantly. And those arms, to be fair, the arms, their influence on your the way you hold your weight in your body, um, your hips, absolutely your ribs and the shoulder, yeah. the shoulder and the rib synchronicity is massive. Um, those arms going up in the air, they change the sternum and the sternum anchors the larynx fr- from the bottom. Uh, it changes the head position. Arms are madness. And also if you move the arms, they contract the diaphragm because the diaphragm is there to to provide your trunk with stability so you don't fall over while you're waving your arms around yes so the arms are a major pathway to someone singing and again what you need is uh and what i hopefully will you know be able to provide which is in the assessment methods course um is is lots of evidence of of how the arms affect the voice and then what you've narrowed it down to is you've narrowed it down to one body part but 10 uses for that body part mm-hmm. which which is actually really great because then it seems like somebody says oh he always does the same thing but actually sometimes you can do one thing but That's with right. 10 rationales and yes. actually i'm not doing the same thing it looks like i am but i'm not yes um because you've got a very deep understanding of how that affects the mechanics yes. of the voice and the system of the voice and what i love about it too is that the student can go home and do that you don't have to be there showing them how to do it. I love anything that the student can just take away and do really simply and easily and they don't have to turn themselves inside out trying to remember what it was that they did. Yeah, And and that is the beauty of that system as well. So where are you doing this now? Like how are you conducting this program? I'm doing it online right now. So um, I'm literally entering the final week of this last run that I'm doing. So I've done a seven-week run on that. And that does involve the movement aspect for um, two weeks, more mechanism behind that. Um, But 
as you say, the movement part is the one that I did with the vocal health organization because the singer doesn't need any knowledge to perform those and neither to be fair would the teacher no. <laughs> if you both can hear that they say it felt easier and you say yeah. it sounded like a bit easier then it's like great nobody needs a lot of background to do that um but when you get into more deep assessments which is where the other weeks come in we need a bit more informa- information around how the vocal folds function how they vibrate right. Right. how they interact with air mm-hmm. resonances articulators um and obviously if Affects that um, always bringing it back to how the singer is thinking about their voice and how they might be planning for it. Mm-hmm. So we've got all those deeply. So this, I've just finished all those weeks and we're into teaching um, and doing assessments live online. So that's where I do it. And I, I've just started a brand new company called teachvoice.com, uh, oh, which nice. is where going forward, I will be um, uh, running courses and mentorships and um, all kinds of stuff basically from that organization. I've been teaching training for a long time, but it's just been mm-hmm. under my name. So I just recently I, I got, I got that company together and that will so be what my is it called? teach. It's a teachvoice.com. Okay. We are going to share all your links in the show notes. So it'll be to your assessment program, to that, to your podcast, everything. So lovely. Yes. So what other projects are you working on, like it, which are part of that um, Teach Voice? Yeah, well, I um, just before that, I finished a registers program for anybody which is looking oh. at uh, quite like a functional voice training um, program. So I have vocal assessment re- methods. I have registers. And one I've done two or three times, but not in the last year. Um, I have an articulators program because the, for me, the tongue is a very wonderful, amazing, powerful tool. Mm-hmm. Also can be a major pain in the bum uh, thing. <laughs> so we, I think we, we need to know about how that tongue behaves and how we can uh, use it. So the articulators for me is very useful. Yeah. So I have those three, those three training programs at the moment, uh, but what they will come under is um, what I found useful in my training is I, I spent time with teachers and with someone like a mentor that I could talk to um, along with sort of programs and education that I could work along with on my own. So, you know, partly self-study, lots of group work. What teachers don't do now is teach in front of each other, which because everyone's really afraid of it, but I think it's crucial. Yes, that is so true. That is so true. Sometimes our teaching community is not as supportive as what they can be. Sometimes our teaching community community can be rather unkind. We should all be working together for the good of our students. Absolutely. You know, and, and I just implore anybody who's teaching on their own, it's like the thought of teaching in front of somebody, um, it probably scares a lot of people to death. And it and it does, it feels nice to stay on your own because there's nobody passing any comment. And the thing is, it's not judgment, but you, you can't, I don't think you can take the quickest path to really successful teaching without yeah. taking that step to expose yeah. what, what, like, let me look inside that lesson and help you. Mm-hmm. And it might not be, we're not trying to always solve problems. Like I look inside the lesson and go, what are you doing with that singer? That's the wrong thing to do. It's like, no, that singer improved. Um, all we can say is, um, on what other levels is that singer wanting to improve, and how can we redirect that? Or 
of that of that thing that you've discovered that works how many iterations can you generate that exercise so it enhances the learning of that singer mm-hmm. and how much they take on that physical skill so you know a lot of the times we're just helping the singer to optimize further what they're doing as well as you know help them with new knowledge so i i really believe that we we do need to let people inside our lessons more often yes and you've been so generous in uh, the way that you've helped everybody in our community. You have your podcast as well, The Naked Vocalist, and there's been over 60 episodes, over 400,000 downloads. I was excited that I had 750 this week. You know, I'm <laughs> <laughs> that is still quite a lot in a week. <laughs> you know, but I'm just saying, you know, like it's um that that is massive and and that's a lot of work to get it there. When you go back and you listen to your early podcasts, do you ever cringe or <laughs> in terms of the format of the show or the quality of the production or even what you thought to be right at the time and what you may know now oh yeah yeah cringe 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 uh for uh, up to episode 20 probably oh really oh yeah but we were just you know we were just rolling with it and um whatever but uh so that was kind of cool and the first episode we did the pilot if you'd like to call it that um we um i asked one of my students who i knew was the most um, or held the least back, if you like, yes. from me, you know? Yes. So he was, he was good. And to be fair, about uh, the first two that we recorded, he was like, you guys talk too much. You talk too much. Uh, and I was th- then, so we recorded two to have them panned. <laughs> and then we, were, we recorded the third one, just kind of went, ah, oh, well, let's just release this one. I, d- I don't care anymore. Let's just release this one. So we just did it anyway. And we got the ball rolling and yes. um, funny enough, they're still really popular. The early ones are very yes. popular. Yes. Um, our views might've changed since then. Our style has changed since then, but mm-hmm. I, it certainly hasn't been to the detriment of my career to just let them be. No, it's no. fine. It's, it's, it's just a journey at the end of the day. Yeah. And I think if yeah. we can get comfortable with that, you know, like saying, like, you know, like, like um, how I sounded, even the way I laughed back then annoys me now. Really? Uh, so, uh, yeah, but it's, it's just the way it is. Oh, I don't know, but it was Come probably on, definitely to too much. What are those laughs? <laughs> I think it was, very, it was probably very high pitched. Hang on, is this my teen years coming back to haunt me again? Oh, is that what uh, <laughs> <laughs> Possibly. But what's good, I think what's what's good about that is because uh, I edited them. Um, oh, sorry, I transcribed them. So I, I all of the words that we said in those episodes are etched in my head. Um, and I think I think you get better at doing it because you listen back to all the things. Yes. And think, I've got to stop yes. talking at that point. Yes. And that's how I think the skills would hone because of all the listening back. So it's horrible to listen back, but it, it, it makes is. it better in the long run. It is. and. It's interesting what you said that, you know, you thought, oh, we're just going to put it out there. But you can't wait in life. You can't wait for things to be perfect. And you can't perfect something that you haven't done. And that was the view that I took with this podcast. I set a date and I thought, I'm just going to launch 
and I'm going to perfect it as I go because I can't perfect it if it's not out there. That's right. And that's what you have to do. And, you know, even just doing a podcast, it can be quite a feeling of being vulnerable too. You know, you're talking about teachers being in a room together like at first it was, wow, you really feel like you're putting yourself out there and then you go, well, you know what, it's, it's, I, I feel good about it and it's also a creative outlet, don't you think? Absolutely, yeah, in a, in a lot of ways and it, it can yes. be somewhat selfish. It's like, I mean, I've learned so much from yes. doing my podcast. Yes, every episode, absolutely, and that's what I, I think also. So you've got so much on your plate. I mean, you're doing, and the baby and the house move and there's been COVID. I mean, what do you do personally? What does Chris do to take care of yourself? Because you did say to me that since COVID, it has given you a kick up the butt to take better care of yourself because you have lost family members to COVID also. That's right. Yeah, yeah, and at the moment, yeah, like because of of a young family, and things like gyms not being open until just a week or two ago, that's been a kind of tricky time, if you like to, and moving house as well, we've been relocating cities, so it's been kind of tricky. And for me, um, looking doing some of the research I've been doing recently, there are some very simple things to to look at in life. I think. Um, when it comes to almost your primal body's function. And one of the things I've been doing is is trying to get in the sunlight more, right? And there's been reasons for that. Like, if you read it, people yeah, read stuff all the time D. and it says, yeah, well, there's, you know, there's vitamin D. There's uh, what I learned about recently was a, um, a molecule that's stimulated by UV light, but only UV light into your eyes, so wearing sunglasses won't stimulate this molecule, but the molecule is to do with melanin, which is the pigmentation, but it links to ghrelin, which is a uh, an appetite hormone. And so, um, when when if we get enough sunlight directly into our don't, not looking into the sun, but you know it's bright outside. Mm-hmm. So as long as those yes. photons are going into your eyes, yes. you're getting this stimulus, and your your body will manage its hunger way better if you get some sunlight in your in directly into your eyes um off reflections and and that is why we eat more in winter apparently because there's so it's such less of an intense sunlight in winter that we we our hormones switch to us eating more so right. if we stay in in the morning for too long yes. or we're stuck in the office all day with yes. no sunlight, yes. you can start to eat, 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 eat. Yeah. And it makes so much sense. And the other thing that um, sunlight um, works with is the good side of cortisol and adrenaline. Yes. Um, all of which are there for us to focus and learn and mm-hmm. be awake, mm-hmm. um, which is why we don't want the sunlight too much or rather bright light at night yes. uh, when you don't want cortisol to keep you awake you want your you know want it to go away so you can go to sleep so for me the outdoors is like the the most simple way of thinking this is doing so many good things for my body right now mm-hmm. uh that, you know if i am stuck in an office all day i can be alert be awake start this process of of self-care and vitamin d has been shown to be 
really effective against the symptoms of COVID. Mm -hmm. uh, so if we do have a pandemic that rushes around the world again, and who'd have thought that we would have, um, yes. if we have been getting this sunlight and we've been getting outdoors, you know, we might, we might all be way better off as a, as a, as a population if we mm -hmm. could just get out more. Yes. But it would be harder in the UK because I is your sunlight months are, are limited. Like it gets dark fairly early and, and the winter can be quite cold and miserable. Yeah. And I, I, it is true that if you were to cycle naked oh. for seven hours a day, Billy right? Billy Connolly. Didn't he? Oh, do is that, that what he did? He did that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, well let's now, say we're Billy Connolly. <laughs> yeah, totally. Let's say we're Billy Connolly. If you're yeah. outside of the, of the six months of summer, if you like, if you're in like October and you were to do that, the sunlight wouldn't be strong enough to generate a single shred of vitamin D mm -hmm. in your body if you're in the UK. Uh, so, and other countries would be obviously a little, a little bit more, a little bit worse. So, yes. so we have that aspect. So we have to supplement vitamin D in those six, like down the downtime, the six months of winter, yes, um, and autumn and winter. So it really is important that we we can look at that. And for singers, you know, vitamin D is to stay happy and healthy. You'll cancel way less gigs if you're able to do that as well. Good. That's very good advice. Very good advice. So we're going to go to last couple of questions. And the first one I'd like to ask you is, who has been your greatest influence as a teacher? Oh, there are quite a few. Um, I think the one that spurred me on into looking at voice science more um, and Vo not not that voice science is everything, but rather voice science was the reason I stepped out of my original box, mm -hmm. which is why I love it so much because it was the reason that I, I explored so much other stuff. Yes. So it, on that sense, I have to thank John Henney for that because he was the first one to mention this stuff to me and I didn't understand the word he was saying. <laughs> but I was like, okay, formants, harmonics. That. Yes. Well, I have an EQ in my head. What? Yes. what? <laughs> yes, yes. I felt like that when I went and did vocal pedagogy. Yes. Right, yeah. Just like, uh, but you just yeah. like keep keep at it. But in recent years, I'd say um, the body side of it, it's Robert Susuma has uh, turned my brain onto so much over the last sort of four years or whatever since mm -hmm. I discovered him um, that I, I really also appreciate uh, his influence. Wow. And you've had so much education and your training is very impressive because I know you've done a lot of auxiliary training as well. So if I was a new teacher or I was thinking about teaching and I came to you, what advice would you give me as to where to start? Where do I start to gain my knowledge from? Oh, yeah. I mean, the process is, I mean, there's no, there's no substitute for learning how to do something yourself. Uh, that doesn't apply to all singers. Um, but to go through a process, sometimes frustrating, of resolving an issue that you've had forever, um, and you just, you just know there'd be an answer out there for it. Um, some teachers haven't got themselves their heads around certain registers in their voice, some of the more basic ones. And for those teachers, it's like, hey, listen, if you struggle with chest voice, work it out. 
work out chest voice um, because you're going to need those skills if you're going to begin to help and 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 um, be able to empathize with them. So mm-hmm. I think learning to do something yourself is really important. Yeah. And when I talk to teachers about starting, if I start a teacher on a journey, I start them on style first because, again, you know, offsets, onsets, you don't even need to get into range. Mm-hmm. You just need to get into color. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be highly dynamic, but we start off on that. And what that helps the singer to do is understand how someone learns because repetition, blocking, um, all these motor learning skills, they can apply to how you teach someone style and how someone becomes perceptive, how they listen, how they how they mimic and interpret information and repeat it back to you. That kind of stuff can be learned in style and arguably those two things are very at the core before you even start to learn about how the larynx functions and, you know, technical exercises. So that's my best advice um, as well, how I get teachers on on that journey first. Yes. And to me, that sounds like someone, once again, where your performance career has an influence on your teaching. Do you feel that if you didn't have that career, that you may not feel this way about it, about that about the training yeah yeah i think so and i think i think uh there there are plenty of teachers out there that haven't had a performance career who are wonderful teachers absolutely um and there'd be uh, and the vice versa plenty of amazing performers that might not be great teachers right so you have that aspect now the best combination has to be you've been a performer and you're a teacher yes right and yeah. you, and you and you got the right thing but either way if you haven't performed i think you you can be very gracious and very open mm-hmm. about how you how you work with people to make that to make that work so there are influences but i think i think the empathy of things and and also if you've been a performer and you've gone into vocal trouble and as a performer i have experienced and had to get my butt out of holes <laughs> If you've got your butt out of a hole, I tell you what, you, you really are. And most people who go into vocal health, by the way, who work to rehabilitate people have been injured mm-hmm. because that it does take that it does take that level of empathy and also that level of uh, um, that kind of uh, experience to even make you think about going, I want to help people. Yes. Yes. Okay. Well, we're going to wrap it up there. And look, thank you so much, Chris. You've been very, very generous in sharing so much information with us on the show and we are going to share all your links in the show notes and everyone will be able to find you. They can find your website, your new teachvoice.com program will be on there as well. We wish you all the very best and uh, I'd love to have you back on the show again sometime in the future. Thank you so much, Marissa. Thank you. Take it easy. Bye. Hey, I hope you enjoyed this episode of A Voice and Beyond. Now is an important time for all of us to spread positivity and empowerment in our Singing Voice community. It's time for you to invest in your own self-care, personal growth and education. 
Use every day as an opportunity to learn and to grow so you can show up for your students feeling energized, empowered, and ready to deliver your best. Be the best role model and mentor you can possibly be and watch your students thrive as you do. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, please make sure to share it with a friend or a colleague who you think will be inspired by this. Copy and paste the link and share it with the people you think will enjoy listening to this show. Please share it on social media and use the hashtag A Voice and Beyond. If you would like to help me, please rate and review this podcast and cheer me on by clicking the subscribe button on Apple Podcasts right now. I would love to know what it is you enjoyed the most about this episode and what was the biggest takeaway for you. I promise you there are many episodes to follow as I'm committed to bringing you more inspiration and conversations just like this one. I'd like to finish up with my final thoughts. Remember that to sing is more than just learning how to use a voice. As singers, our whole body is the instrument and our bodies echo what we feel physically, mentally and emotionally. So singing is not just about the voice. It's about a voice and beyond. Please take care of yourself and I look forward to your company next time.